Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has been arrested and is now in the middle of the three religious trials. The first preliminary religious trial was before Annas, who had been the high priest for 16 years. The Romans technically replaced him with Caiaphas, his son-in-law, but Annas continued to exert great influence and work behind the scenes with the Romans and continued to be called a high priest. This preliminary hearing's purpose was to find a legitimate charge against Jesus, but it failed miserably. The second religious trial was really the significant one before Caiaphas. After frustration of not being able to find credible witnesses against Jesus in the middle of the night, two men were finally found who claimed they heard Jesus say that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's in verse 58. Most of the Jewish religious leaders knew Jesus' use of the phrase in three days was referring to his prediction of his own resurrection, which was a claim of divinity. But even this still was not enough to put him to death, especially because these two witnesses did not agree on some of the details, as we see in verse 59. Then in a very bold and what was really an illegal procedural move, Caiaphas said to Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This put Jesus under the most solemn oath in Israel and ask him if he was both Messiah and God. Jesus firmly answered, I am, and then added some details that explained the kind of Messiah and Son of God he was, referring to a magnificent passage in Daniel 7. This passage describes a divine figure approaching God Almighty to join in God's judgment. The Jewish leaders did not misunderstand Jesus' references. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah who was God in human flesh. The Jewish leaders then immediately called for his death, spit on him, beat him, etc. This morning we will focus on Peter's denial, which happened in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas while this second religious trial was going on after midnight in the late hours or late night hours in the early, early morning hours of Friday. The third religious trial is recorded recorded in Mark 15, verse 1, after the account of Peter's denial in chapter 14, 
verses 66 through 72, which is our main passage this morning. This third religious trial was merely a brief formal hearing before the Sanhedrin court at daybreak Friday confirming the charge of blasphemy against Jesus. So today we're going to be in the courtyard looking at Peter's denial. If you are able, please stand as I read Mark 14, verses 66 through 72. Mark 14, beginning at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me the three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, all four gospel accounts record Peter's denial. And some of the details in these accounts seem to differ. This is exactly what we should expect as we realize where it happened. In the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas, where so many people were in and out and milling around. And so many things were being said over a period of several hours. Here's a summary of this scene from all four Gospels provided by James Montgomery Boyce. That will help us. Peter was brought into the courtyard of the high priest by a disciple who knew the high priest. Guess who? Probably John. And as Peter came in, he was recognized by the servant girl who kept the door. And although she didn't object to Peter's presence initially, she most likely followed him into the courtyard where he stopped to warm himself at a fire. And there's where she asked the question. John doesn't say she asked the question at the door, only that the question was asked by the servant girl who was at the door. Secondly, after this, various questions were asked by different people at the fire and near the outer gateway leading to Peter's second denial. And things seemed to be settling down. But thirdly, sometime after this, Luke says about an hour later, 
as the trial was drawing to a close, those who were in the courtyard accosted Peter again. Among them, the relative of the man Peter had attacked earlier who asked, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And that's in John, in his account in chapter 18 of John. Now, to all these questions, Peter replied with increasingly strong denials. Matthew and Mark say that Peter's later denials were with oaths and cursing. Each of the Gospels record that immediately after Peter's third denial, a rooster crowed, to which Luke adds, the Lord turned and looked. At Peter. The first three Gospels say that at that point Peter recognized what he had done and rushed out and wept. Matthew and Luke add that he wept bitterly. Peter truly loved Jesus. He had earlier tried to defend Jesus in the garden when he drew his sword and used it. And here he was now in this courtyard. And where were all the other disciples? Not in the courtyard. Except John. Everybody else had run off into the night. Yet Peter did fall. And he began to fall with the question, not of someone powerful in the Sanhedrin or a Roman soldier, but from a servant girl. We need to understand why Peter fell, not because we're already aware of many of the factors, which most of you are, but because even though we may know much of this, we so easily keep repeating our own versions of it. What were the steps that we can trace in Peter's fall? First, Peter did not believe Jesus' warning. He even contradicted Jesus openly. Earlier in chapter 14, verse 27, we read, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But what did Peter reply? Even though they all fall away, I will not. And then Jesus repeated his warning in even stronger terms. And Jesus said to him in verse 30 of chapter 14, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter came emphatically back with, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter is telling the Lord what? He's telling the Lord that he is wrong. 
that he is mistaken. Sound familiar? How many times have each of us done the same thing? Jesus is never wrong or mistaken, and Peter just flat out did not believe him. Why are we so much like Peter? Why don't we believe Jesus when he says, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Or, apart from me, you can do nothing. If we believe Jesus, we will not be as self-confident as we usually are. We will stay close to Jesus and look to him for direction and strength all the time. And especially when temptation comes. Good intentions do not necessarily translate into faithful obedience. In other words, Peter did not value what Jesus said more than his own opinion. And we need to be honest and ask ourselves a question. Do I? Do you? Secondly, Peter looked down on the other disciples, which is pretty clear. He probably never would have admitted this. He probably would have said something like, we're all in this together, guys. But as you can tell from chapter 14, verse 29, where he says, even though they all fall away, I will not. That Peter really did think He was the most upright, the most perceptive, and the most courageous of all the disciples. He could see the others falling away. Why? Because he thought they were weaker than he was. So what this means is that Peter had an inflated opinion of himself, of his commitment, of his strength, of his courage, of his ability to see things correctly and understand what was going on. Thirdly, Peter failed to pray. Just remember the garden. True, it was in the wee hours of the night and it had been a very difficult night. And he was dog-tired. Jesus would have been very tired, too. And we know that Jesus did get tired, so tired on one occasion that he fell asleep in the stern of a boat in a huge storm on the Sea of Galilee. Yes, he was human. He got tired. But earlier, he had verbally warned the disciples to pray In chapter 14, verse 38, watch and pray. Is that all he said? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
Peter had been personally told by Jesus in the garden to pray, but he hadn't. How many of our failures are a result of our failure to pray? Are we learning how to pray without ceasing, as Paul instructs in the th- the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5:17 Just think about how much of Jesus's instruction was about prayer. And the bottom line is that we need to pray. Why? Because praying shows what we could call a proper evaluation of our inability to obey without depending upon God. And if we were honest and we ask, how many times have we had to learn that lesson? This is when you start understanding what infinite means. We can't count how many times. In other words, the reasons we do not pray are mainly because, and we have to be brutally honest with ourselves and even ask God to open our eyes enough to be honest about this, are because we don't really think that we need God. That is the bottom line. This is another way of saying that we think we're strong enough to get by on our own. Isn't it weird? When we grow up as kids, the whole point is to be out on our own. And we've grown up when we decide we don't need our parents anymore. To grow up spiritually is exactly the opposite. And I think we need to recognize that. A mature believer is someone who has grown to know that they always need to depend on God more, not less. The immature believer is the one who thinks, I don't need to. I've learned it already. That's just a sign that you haven't learned anything. We don't think we really need God. This is another way of just saying that we think that we're strong enough to get by on our own. And you know what that is? That's just a demonstration of unbelief, of not believing what God says is true about us. We are also quick not to believe that he actually wants and likes to hear our prayers and answer them. This is precious. It should be precious. Well, another point here. Fourth, Peter thought that he could be safe in bad company. The people in the courtyard were not Jesus' friends. They were his sworn enemies. Granted, he was following him for the reason 
that he did love him. But it also made him blind to where he was. David knew a lot about the danger of bad company, which is why he wrote so often about avoiding evildoers. And sometimes when we come to some of those psalms, do you feel as uneasy as I do? Because they often sound very self-righteous to our ears and a little too judgmental and a little too harsh. And you kind of go towards a Bible translation that kind of waters it down a little bit. But we've got to understand that the reason David did not want to associate with evildoers was not because he thought that he was better than they were, but because he was so much like them. He knew that. And he fought it his whole life. He could not afford to be in their close company if he wanted to live an upright life. And we say, hate the sin, but love the sinner. And folks, that is right. But it's not always so easy to do since love of the sinner, if we're not careful, often leads to a love of the sinner's vices and the sinner's ways. I think this is one of the biggest blind spots amongst us as Christians in our day. We are way too confident about who we hang around with and want to grow close to. Yes, we must have relationships with people who do not love God and we must care about them and invest in their lives. But there is a difference between that and being running with the people that are his enemies. Because it affects us a lot more than we think. You may be related to one. Most of us are at least one. You may live close to one. You may have friends, co-workers, neighbors, etc., etc., and you invest in their lives. But when you start sharing the intimate details and close things and experiences in life, and you are not aware that this person thinks completely different than me, and those shared things are loved so much that they speak more to your heart than the Word of God does, you are in trouble. And we all can probably attest to many occasions where that has been true. And you usually find that out when you start going to your high school reunions after 20 years. I used to be close to that person. I care about that person. What has happened to that person? Have you noticed that? You see, David was not so sure that he could successfully love one and hate the other. That he could successfully love the sinner but hate the sin. 
So he decided to pray this way. And so should we. In Psalm 139, 23 and 24, one of my favorite verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That is a pretty wonderful, honest assessment about understanding our own susceptibility to adopting the beliefs, the attitudes, and the foundations of people that that do not know God and that speak to our own hearts. Isn't it interesting that we're called to love those who do not know the the Lord, that have not been redeemed by him, and at the same time, not to let their loves become our loves? And in order to do that, you have to be committed to and love the Lord and know why so that you can love those people. Because loving those people who do not know him means what? It means that your primary concern for them in everything that you share with them in life is to finally get to speak to their heart about the one who they do not know. And sometimes that takes decades, and sometimes it takes a week. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. So Peter, and there are more, more things that we could say about why Peter became susceptible, so susceptible in this situation. Fear of man, realize it was fear of first the servant girl, of what they thought more than what God thought. Now remember that Peter had just been with Jesus. This is the same night. We often forget the time frame here. And he'd taken the first communion. His resolve was never stronger. Have you noticed in your own walk that the times that you're most susceptible are sometimes right after the most glorious closeness to the Lord you've ever expended in your life? Why is that? Because we get overconfident. We just had a glorious experience loving the Lord and his people. And in the next minute is when the most unbelievably sneaky temptations invade our hearts and minds.
His resolve was never stronger, yet he fell. So will we, unless we depend upon Jesus and cry out to him. And we need to do that as he himself prays for us and supports and protects us from the evil one, knowing that that is going on. This is exactly what Jesus did for Peter. In fact, Luke tells us that Jesus had told Peter something earlier that very evening. In Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, we read, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. That's scary right there, just to read that verse. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. If you are thinking right now that Jesus didn't get his prayer answer because he fell, you missed the whole point. Do you see? This is why Peter did not fall away even though he fell. Because Jesus prayed for him that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You think Peter even heard that part? Well, obviously he got it later. Now, the glorious lesson in this passage is, comes as the answer to, are you aware that Jesus has also prayed for you and continues to pray for your perseverance? In John 17, 20, Jesus prayed not only for the original disciples, but also, we read, for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's you. That's me. In John 17, 24, Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In Hebrews 7.25 we read that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. In other words, completely. Those who draw near to God through him. This is the wonderful part. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Other people pray for us, and that is good. Folks, that's beyond good. There, there's, that's special. It's needed. It's precious. To intercede for someone else is a privilege, and it's immensely important. Yet our prayers are weak at best, and those who pray for us do come and go over time. 
only Jesus, as we read, always lives to make intercession for those who are his own, who belong to him, those who have been purchased by his own blood. Do we value that? You know, we're we're always talking about preaching to yourself the truth. How about when the temptation hits and you didn't see it coming? In your heart, fall on your knees and realize that Jesus is interceding for you at that very moment. And when you do see it coming and you start playing with it and compromising and each step, well, I won't go any farther here and it's there and then it's there. What if we realized that Jesus was interceding for us right then? Do you realize as you look at how this progressed that starting with the Last Supper, you can see this coming for Peter. Well, if we could see it coming, reading the text, obviously Jesus, because of who he is, knew exactly what was going to happen. How do you think he looked at Peter? as Peter denied him the third time in the cock crow. Was it a look of, I told you so? How you answer that question may really tell you a whole lot about whether you know your Lord or not. Yes, he hates sin. He knows he's the answer. And I wonder whether Peter became who he did after all this because of the the multiple look of God incarnate upon him as he denied him that third time. Peter didn't quit sinning completely after this. He just knew his Lord a lot better after this. The last thing that that we read in our passage today is that he broke down and wept. And we know from Matthew and Luke, they both say that he wept bitterly. Yes, this is sad. But why is that also encouraging? Because Peter's tears, in this case, tears don't always communicate this. But in Peter's case, tears showed that he still truly loved Jesus. They were a sign of his genuine remorse and his true repentance. Jesus had told Peter, and when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. And we see Peter and John. No pun intended. Yes, it is intended. The dashing duo 
running as fast as they could to the tomb when they heard from the women that it was empty on that Sunday morning because Jesus had risen from the dead. Then John tells us how the risen Jesus gently restored Peter to fellowship. That is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He got it. Jesus knows how to deal with each and every one of us in those situations. And we see at Pentecost, this same Peter preached the first great sermon of the Christian era. And one of the few times in Scripture we have a number of believers Over 3,000 people believed. And it wasn't Peter. I knew the Lord. He called me to him when I was. I gradually grew in strength. I was one of his three main guys. I saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration clothed in glory. Yeah, he had to talk to me a few times, but I got it. And now he's called me to be the rock. What a difference. Peter, the whole sermon was about Christ. He was a humble man, finally, empowered with the power of God because it was God's words that he was preaching and the truth about Christ. If Christ did all that with a man who denied him three times, there is much hope for the rest of us. The tragic event in the high priest's courtyard was probably still vivid in Peter's mind. What do you think? His whole life? Oh, yes. Because he saw the grace through it. He understood that Christ needed to tell him that beforehand to get him on his knees so he would trust him as he spread the gospel and came across all these horrid situations later. That he would have a voice to people who had just come to Christ. You must depend on him. You don't stand before the Lord God Almighty in any righteousness of your own. It's all his. That's why his voice was powerful. Notice what else God did, though. Did Peter stay the number one honcho amongst the disciples? Yeah, he was the rock.
But God called somebody else to be the main man. Paul. And we read some great passages later. It says, Peter's writing to these people that have become Christians. And what does he say? And Paul, whose passages sometimes are hard to understand. You know what? He was okay with it. And Paul never thought he should be that anyway. He was the one that was arresting Christians and having them killed. These are all great and true stories. And there's newer versions of the people that Christ brings to himself sitting in this room. What is he doing with you to get you to this place? Has he gotten your attention yet? How did he do it? Because it won't be the same for hardly anybody with somebody else. You have your own special tailored God cares about you and will sanctify you plan. So that event is vividly in Peter's mind many years later when he admonished his his fellow believers. How about at the end of his second letter, 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. Listen to this in this context. He's writing, he says, You therefore, beloved, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Are you looking forward to meeting him someday in heaven? We're all going to go, man, I wish I would gotten to know you a little better through the word of God a little earlier in my life. And, and then he's going to look and say, hey, God knew when the best time to work in you was. He had you. He has you. He always will have you. And we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's been really strange this week thinking that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper the day we, we, we have a message about Peter's denial, which was only a Hours after the first Lord's Supper. So watch out for this afternoon. We need to be able to say things like that 
it humbles us to make us realize that we are always susceptible and that our dependence has to be on the Lord, even in situations where we operate with great confidence and authority and giftedness. So be ready for that. We've got to realize that this meal is not appointed primarily for a physical body. And what has happened is it would be really hard to even think that with the elements that we use in these times for the Lord's Supper. I hope you all realize that. Do you realize that in the Corinth, for the Corinthians, they had this huge meal that was the Lord's Supper, and probably most of the early churches did. And they, they, had, a, they had difficulty distinguishing between, well, is, is this really just for our spiritual selves or for the other? Now, I don't know how all this happened and didn't do the research for how it gradually became something that could be obviously not for our physical body because it's about this big. Well, this big. But we need to think about that and understand that this meal is for our souls. Scripture teaches us that we receive true spiritual nourishment when we focus on and believe in this Christ. And as we sing, we need to let the words of this hymn, we need to let them refresh and encourage our faith in the Lamb of God about how He did come, how He was the accepted atoning sacrifice for our sin and will come again as the King of Kings.